You're listening to The Right Process, a podcast in which one writer tells the story of creating one work from concept to completion. I'm your host, Charlie Jensen. The Right Process is brought to you by the Writer's Program at UCLA Extension, helping you reach your writing goals one page at a time. Enroll now at uclaextension.edu. Hi, I'm Colette Sartor, and I wrote a book called Once Removed and Other Stories. Colette Sartor's linked short story collection, Once Removed and Other Stories, won the 2018 Flannery O'Connor Award for Short Fiction and was published by the University of Georgia Press in 2019. Her writing has appeared in Carve Magazine, Slice Magazine, the Chicago Tribune, Kenyon Review Online, Colorado Review, and elsewhere. Among other awards, she has received a Reynolds Price Short Fiction Award and a Truman Capote Fellowship from the Iowa Writers Workshop, where she completed her MFA. She teaches at the UCLA Extension Writers Program as well as privately and is an executive director of the CineStory Foundation, a mentoring organization for emerging TV writers and screenwriters. The women in the linked short story collection, once removed in other stories, carry the burdens imposed in the name of intimacy, the secrets kept, the lies told, the disputes initiated, as well as the joy that can still manage to triumph. A singer with a damaged voice and an assumed identity befriends a silent, troubled child. An infertile law professor covets a tenant's daughterly affection. A new mother tries to shield her infant from her estranged mother's surprise Easter visit. An aging shopkeeper hides her husband's decline and a decades-old lie from her best friends to keep them from moving away. Some of these women possess the fierce natures and long, vengeful memories of expert grudge holders. Others avoid conflict at every turn, or so they tell themselves. For all of them, grief lies at the core of love. I started writing these stories a long time ago. It's very easy when you're a short story writer to just move on to the next story because this one might not be working, and, and that's, that's pretty much the way I work. So I started writing short stories again uh, after I graduated to teach myself how to write a story. My stories were very static. I had a hard time generating conflict. There was a lot of navel-gazing, a lot of interiority that I appreciate in other people's stories, but that just, it was boring in my work. And I just kept looking for ideas that got me excited about writing. Alice Monroe is a god to me. Um, and I remember reading an introduction to one of her collections where she said, I wrote short stories because that was the length of my attention span when I was raising my children. I thought, well, once I had my kid, well, now I have really have a reason to keep writing short stories. Plus, once I kind of figured out, I wouldn't, I don't want to say formula, but there is a certain formula to writing a short story. And once I figured out kind of the cadence of building tension, building tension, building tension, hitting that high spot, and then quickly dropping off. That works so well in short storytelling. And then doing that in miniature in each scene, I fell in love. Every now and then I would say, oh, I should really write a novel because that's the way you actually can become a real writer. I just kept writing short stories. I tell this to my students. I wish someone had said to me, really look at what your thematic is. Really, really think about what your thematic is and what characters you love and start thinking of your work as a collection, as a whole, because I didn't do that. 
And I had to go back and impose that when I finally sat down. And it took me years to sit down and say, okay, at this point, why don't you have a book? You've resigned yourself to the fact that you love writing short stories. Everybody else around you has books. Why is there no collection? And I think part of it was I'm such a slow writer that any little thing that might impede me from writing a first draft, which is revision, I love. I could revise. I even revise stuff when it gets republished. But writing that first draft is intensely painful to me. So anything that might impede me completing a first draft, I would avoid. But eventually I had to say, no, it's time to start thinking in terms of what does a collection look like given the stories that I have. La Cuesta and Cantata probably took me over a decade to write, if not 15 years, because it started, and it's had so many different names, it started out being set in Phoenix, and I didn't know what it was about. I knew the two characters, the married couple who were at the heart of the story, and I knew their dynamic, and I knew where I wanted the story to go in tone, but that's all I knew. And so I would write little bits and pieces and say, this isn't working, and just put it away. And sometimes I would put it away for years. We went on just this little tiny girls weekend when my sister was getting married a very long time ago. And we went up to Cambria. I mean, every little shop has just Hearst Castle stuff. And we saw the elephant seals and I saw the bluffs and it was so gorgeous. And I remember working on this story at one point and thinking, huh, let me start researching elephant seals because I'm interested in that. And I just got obsessed with that and obsessed and obsessed. And, and then I started to be able to write the story. And then I started researching Hearst Castle, which was it fascinates me. It's an absolutely fascinating place and all the animals. And I love animals. And I thought, oh, wait, I'm going to put them in this town. But I probably didn't have a full draft that I really thought was decent until 2015. So yeah, probably 15 years. And then Malocchio, which is the one story in the uh, collection that I actually just finished in 2018 before I sent the collection off. I had a piece of it. I don't even know how old the little piece of it was because there's a story about my father when he was little. Something happened with his grandmother that scared him and he hid under the bed. And it's, it's a long story. I, and I won't go into it. But I had this little bit of his story that I had written years and years ago. And I thought it was never going to go anywhere, so I left it alone. And after talking to an editor, Matthew, Matthew Limpidi, who's with Carve Magazine, he's published two of my stories. I actually had him help me put the collection together at that point about what was needed to complete the collection. It's like, you know, I'd really like another Rose story. Rose is one of the characters who now traces throughout the collection. And I said, actually, I have a story that I think I could make into a Rose story. And that was in 2017, right after the election, when I was incredibly depressed, you know, early 2017, and wasn't working. Once I have the first draft, I cheer and I say, oh, wow, I have a beginning, a middle, and an end. I'm not sure they all belong in the same story, but I'm going to set that draft aside for a while. And I put it in a drawer. As a short story writer, I've always got numerous stories going at once. Even on my hard drive, I've got a file called Story Infants 
because I'll just jot down any story ideas I have in there, and I'll, anything I work on just a little bit goes in that file. But once it's got a beginning, a middle, and an end, then it gets to jump into the story file. And, you know, sometimes that story sits there for months, years. Uh, usually I can't wait to get back to it because I love to revise. The first thing I do is give it to my sister, who is also a writer, and she's also a director, but she's a screenwriter. But she's a phenomenal writer, and we kind of share a brain, you know, twin thing. But she's also a phenomenal critic, and I trust her with that sloppy draft because she knows what I'm trying to accomplish. She reads through it. She gives me notes. And from there, I go to work. And generally, what I'll first do is, you know, I'll address any... I attack the, okay, fix the commas and fix this sentence, you know, the easy stuff first. You know, if I, if I change a paragraph, I save a new draft just because I'm like, oh, I can always go back to that. That'll be there. And then I never go back to that paragraph, you know, the old one. But then I'll get down into the, the – I try to first address the character stuff because the language, all of that stuff is going to change. What really needs to happen is I need to work up the nerve to say, okay, this character doesn't make sense – you know, my main character, that's who I'm going to look at first. And I'm going to say, do all of these actions feel motivated given the conflict I've thrown at her? Or it's usually a her. My main characters are usually women. And if these actions, reactions don't feel motivated, what's missing in her character? What have I missed? And I do that pass. I'll do passes like that also for other characters. But once I can nail down my main character, that defines everybody else. And I will go back and try to think through the story from another character's perspective to make sure that their reactions feel motivated and real for them. But ultimately, most of my revising time in the beginning is spent on making sure my main character feels whole. You know, especially because in first drafts, main characters are usually the most pa passive characters at all. So when there's a point where they're just sitting there thinking, or I, I have, I have, I'm in several different writing groups, and I've been with one for ever since we first started writing. And when Mandy or Lorraine would say to me, you know, your character's doing a lot of walking out of rooms at the end of an argument. You might want to look at that. That's what I do. But that's the other thing. I workshop a lot. You know, any I know I remember going to hear Lori Moore at the LA Library series downtown a while back. She was saying she doesn't give anybody her manuscript until she sends it off to her editor. I will never and I always thought I had to be that kind of writer, that real writers don't need input. I need input. You know, so and, and I know I only get one first read, so that's why I tend to be in several writing groups at once. So I know that revision process. I know how I revise a short story. The thing that was really difficult for me and the, th the reason I think it took me so long to publish this collection is that once I admitted that I wanted to write a book and that it was going to be a short story collection, I didn't know how to do that. Because to me, it's all about revising. And I hadn't written stories that really connected. They were connected thematically, as a matter of fact, Many of them were connected too thematically. They, they overlapped too much, so much so that there was nothing into, they were too similar. So I do what I always do, which is say, well, I don't know what to do, so I'm just going to throw six stories together, and that's a collection. I'll put one of the best ones first, the really best one last, 
and I'll try to hide the fact that there's too much overlap by kind of changing the order. And I didn't get very good results. So I'd enter a few competitions a year. And, you know, occasionally I might be a finalist or something or usually nothing. But I wasn't doing the real work, which is sitting down and really looking at the stories and why I thought they all belonged together in a collection. With a novel, you're always revi- like you write your messy first draft, you go back and you revise and you figure out, oh, I've left myself these big chunks, you know. And I tend not to do that in short stories. I don't put a little bracket that says insert scene here. I tend to write through it because you can because they're short. The challenge was figuring out that revision process. So a lot of stuff happened. I kind of put the book aside. And then I got some notes from somebody who had never read the collection before. And one of the things she said to me was, you know, you've got these themes that are going through. You may want to think about trying to link these stories better. You know, this character could be this character. You know, you could have characters overlapping. And so I went, uh, my parents have this wonderful little, uh, this wonderful lake house uh, in Pennsylvania. Not lake house, it's on a little stream and everything. And it was November. So I went there and I took this notebook that I actually was looking through last night. And I started writing, like kind of just outlining, okay, here are the characters in each story. Who could overlap? How do I see these stories connecting? And do I want to put them on a timeline? Will that help me organize them? And if I do that, what do I need to change in each story so that they feel like they occur in the different time periods? So that as someone's reading this collection, it feels like time is passing, which I had never done before. Yeah, exactly. It was just, whoa. And the first thing I did was read them as a whole and say, What's the thematic that I see coming through here? Oh, it's about parenting and being, and this is, I think, no, I had kids by then, but even when I wrote some of the early stories in this, in this collection, I didn't have kids, but I was writing about parent and chil- parenting and children and because I was writing about being parented and what that meant to people's feelings about having children or becoming adults those types of issues. So when I started reading my stories, I thought, oh, that's what's coming up here. It's about parenting and caretaking because parenting I use very loosely because sometimes parenting is you're taking care of each other. You know, especially in La Cuesta Encantada, which is the last story, by the time the collection comes to an end, that story's about a group of best friends who are in their 70s who are taking care of each other. None of them have children. And it's all about, well, what, what, what do we do for each other? You know, because this is who we are. We are united, you know, as much as we may love, hate each other sometimes. So I started realizing those were my themes. You know, how do we take care of each other? You know, how do we power through that? What kinds of secrets do we have to keep what kinds of betrayals happen out of that? And that helped me say, oh, okay, I can see how I might be able to put these stories together. So that was the connective tissue. I think what helped me most was once I recognized what the connective tissue was, then I started thinking, 
okay, who are my recurring characters? Do they need to appear in like one more story? Two of the major characters come out of Daredevil and they were going to be appear very far apart in the story. And someone said to me, yeah, but the sun grows up over time. It would be really helpful if we could see him a couple of more times, you know, in the collection, see how he grows up. So I did actually rewrite two of the stories to include him and his mother because, you know, the mother was more of a central character than the father uh, because of certain issues. She was the main character in Daredevil. I really loved what that did, not just to the collection as a whole, but how it changed the stories into which I kind of plopped them. Because in order for them to be in those stories, I had to figure out what their presence, why I instinctively thought, oh, they need to be there. And in one story, it's because a new mother who lives next door to this single mom and her disabled son is, you know, she's having her own doubts about motherhood. And so I started realizing, oh, that's why I put them in this story. And I have this story where two best friends, they're pretty young. I think they're late teens, early 20s, and they have a dog walking business together, a dog, you know, pet care business together. The main character's best friend is transitioning. And I wrote this one a long time ago. We just decided it was too dated. But I managed to work in this mom and her disabled son into this story because of the dog walking business. And they and this family had a dog. It was interesting to me how actually seeing that kid changed my main character's perception of her own behavior. It helped me do the more structural work that needed to be done. I have a big thing about names. A lot of times I can't start a story until I have the right name for a character or a character doesn't pop into place until he or she has the right name. And so Rune, I've always loved Rune. She's kind of mysterious and she you know, puzzled even me. And, and so she was in this story Bandit and I thought, oh, wait a minute. She's an F-man too. And by now, she's had the kid. And then there's a story that I had been working on because I used to sing. So it was a story about a woman who, who is a singer and a music teacher and she loses her voice. And she's living across the hall from this mother and child. Oh, that was Rune. And now they're in another story that I'm working on that I didn't finish in time for the collection. And I wouldn't cop to the fact that I wanted this mother and son to be Rune and Fender is the kid's name until I went to a workshop this summer. I'm like, it's not working because I didn't let them be the people they need to be. But it was such a wonderful process to realize, oh, this is what I need to do given the stories that, I've, that I didn't write to be a collection. I need to be looking at myself as a writer and why I wrote these stories, and how I think they actually do fit together. And then once I actually started rewriting them so that different characters, you know, I was combining characters and overlapping characters, once I did it, it just felt like, oh, yeah, this is the way it was meant to be. Yes, I was always pretty much working with the same pool of stories, because generally what happens when I write is I know pretty early on if a story is not something I'm interested in pursuing. And like today, actually, or yesterday, when I was kind of going through my story infants to try to figure out when stories started, I'm like, oh, wait, why did I abandon that one? That, 
that looks like fun. So, you know, some of them may get revisited. But during this time period, because I really feel like I'm always working on how can I be a better writer? How can I be a better storyteller? Because there's this little voice inside of me, that corporate lawyer voice that I haven't quite abandoned that keeps saying, you're not really a writer. You're just pretending. But once I started rewriting them, titles changed, definitely. And some stories changed more than others. I have a story that was originally called A Walk in the Park, and that's now called Extra Precautions. You know, it's funny. I have submitted because the contest I always wanted to win because my favorite writer, Antonia Nelson, won it was the Flannery O'Connor Award. So I've actually submitted to that quite a bit. And one year I was a finalist. And at the time, the original editor was still there. And she sent me notes, or they sent me her notes. And one of her comments was, these endings feel like they're coming out of nowhere. They're abrupt and they're coming out of nowhere. So in 2017, when I sat down with Matthew Limpidi from Carve to talk about the collection as a whole, I had mentioned that comment to him. He said, well, I can see that in X, Y, and Z story. So I sat down with, there's a story that, oh God, was originally called Purple People Eater. And when Kenyon Review agreed to publish it, their caveat was, but you have to change the name. So that became Daredevil. And that story, that ending changed a lot. But Walk in the Park, now Extra Precautions, that changed totally. Like I just had to get rid of a whole scene and really think through what feels organic because one of the things that I've learned over the years that you need to, and it seems so obvious, but you need to pay off at the end of the story what you set up at the beginning. And if you end up in a scene, and this is what you know, uh, Extra Precautions was doing, was ending up in a scene without resolving one of the, or at least trying to resolve, throwing the readers a bone about this one central mystery in the story, wasn't even addressing it. Readers feel cheated. So I really had to sit down and think about how can I address this mystery, but still stay true to the story I want to tell, which is not to fully resolve that mystery, to leave it open-ended. And I figured it out. But I wouldn't have if I wasn't trying to put those stories together in a collection. I always knew that this book was not going to be a book that was going to be agented and go to a big house. I tend to write small, quiet stories that erupt into conflict, but again, they're small, quiet stories. So I always just assumed that it was going to be a contest book, that if it got published, it was going to be through a contest. And I would submit to a few a year, thought, now I need to rewrite it. And this is my process with even a short story. I always submit before something is ready because I just need to get out of my life. And then once the rejections start coming, I start thinking, oh, I'm seeing this in a totally new light. Okay, I'm going to go do X, Y, and Z to this. Honestly, that's the process I took with the collection, except I would set it aside for much longer periods of time. So yeah, so I was submitting to small presses, to contests every now and then, rewriting it, always going back to UGA Presses Contest because, again, that's the one that was my, oh, I'd love to win that. I think it was when I went to BinderCon LA, which is this wonderful conference, female-centric conference, 
And I made myself do the speed dating, agenting thing. Most of the ones I was going to meet with ended up not being able to make it. So I had to just do letter pitches. And I thought, you know, let me just try this agent thing. And I actually did get interest. I was surprised. But everybody wanted to know, okay, great. Can we read your novel? You know, because I do have, like, now I'm up to maybe 100, 125 pages of my novel. I'm like, sure, when it's more polished. I'm like, you know, I, I just can't do this. This is silly. Why am I thinking I'm going to go that route? That's not what this book is. Once I got myself out of the doldrums and no longer obsessing in 2000, early 2017, I thought, you know what? Matthew Limpedi, Carve Magazine again, has published two of my stories. He's always been my champion. I love working with him. I'm going to hire him. You know, I needed fresh eyes because my writers groups had read this enough. My sister had read this enough. I needed someone who really knows short stories, knows collections, to just read through the whole thing and talk through with me. Are these connections working? Are the stories too thematically connected? Is this order working? Because by now I had kind of locked my order into place because of the time references. I mean, I could change it, but I had started to think, like, to me, that was the reality of the collection. They're my people, you know, and, and, and this, these were their lives. And if I was going to disrupt their lives, I had to have a really good reason. And I'm telling you, he was a game changer. Right away, he said, these two stories feel dated, and I really think you can get rid of them. I had been calling this collection Kinship, Friendship, and Other Afflictions. As you can tell, I'm a huge Alice Monroe fan because he said, you know, that sounds like title of one of her collections. I'm like, yeah. And he said, you know, Once Removed would be a good title for the collection, not just because it's the title of a story, but also because you're looking at how connected people feel to each other, whether they're family or not. And some of these people are completely enmeshed in fairly dysfunctional ways. And some of these people are disconnected and feel like they're on the periphery longing to be in. We can organize the stories, and they already pretty much were, so that the stories where the people are the feeling most disconnection begin and end the collection. He said, but I think you need, like I said before, one more Rose story. And that's what I did. I sent the book out sporadically for six years and then I stopped. Even after Matthew gave me the notes and he gave me phenomenal notes, I sat on the book and I didn't submit it anywhere in 2017 because I'm like, I don't know if this is ready. And I wasn't ready to read it again. I just, you get to that point with your own work. I couldn't read it one more time. And then in 2018, I'm like, I have to get off my ass. And I wasn't writing anything I was super interested in. I have one story that I was in love with I thought was going to be in the collection, but it wasn't quite there yet, but I was trying to wait. And I thought, this is ridiculous. I have to do something. I have to stop feeling sorry for myself. I can't do much about what's going on in the world except write. I applied to go to Tin House Writers Workshop because Antonia Nelson was going to be there that summer with her husband and a whole bunch of amazing people at the very last minute because I wasn't going to submit the collection until after I took her workshop. But I saw the Flannery O'Connor date coming up and I thought, you know, it's not going to win anyway. I'm just sending it in. It's not ready. Malocchio's not finished. I'm just doing it. So I went to Tin House. I had 
the most incredible time. I highly recommend, I want to go back at some point, but I have to go back when my novel's in better shape because, yeah, I'll probably go back with more short stories. It was a wonderful experience. Antonia Nelson is every bit as brilliant and fantastic as I always knew she would be. (laughs) And I met wonderful writers and wonderful people who I'm still in contact. It was great. You know, it was everything you want a writer's workshop to be. And I'm driving along. I always go to a cafe first, and I work for a while, and I get a text message. And I kind of glance at it, and it says, Lee K. Abbott, you've won the Flannery O'Connor Award. Did you not get my phone call? And I pulled over. I thought, wait, did I even enter that? I thought I didn't enter. I, I, I don't know. I don't know. So I take my phone. I said, do you have the right number? This is Colette Sartor. And he kind of, you know, nothing came back for a second. He's like, yes, I got it from Bethany Sneed. You are the right person. Could you call me when you get a chance? (laughs) And I was, I have to say, shaking, couldn't drive. I was in total shock because I I honestly had to go back and check Doetrope, which is what I use to track submissions, to make sure I really had entered. And I was, yeah, I was thrilled. Like, you wouldn't believe. It was just, yeah. It helped be teaching. It really helped. I, in, when I was writing the book, it, I, you know, a lot of writers I talk to don't want to teach. And I get that. Because teaching does use the same part of your brain as writing does. I find it much easier to look at other people's work and say, I know how to fix this than I do with my own work. And so therefore, I tend to spend more time on people's other people's work than my own work. But when I'm sitting down to organize a class, or when I'm even just sitting down to read, you know, read my student work and critique it, I find myself subconsciously thinking, oh, this thing you're commenting on, can you please do it in amphibian? because it's not happening in that story. And you know that's the solution. You're just resisting it. So it's really all of those things that we talk about in workshop and when we're teaching creative writing makes me excited about writing and makes me think about writing in a different way that I can then go back to my own work with. So I think teaching really helped me think through, especially think through how to put together a collection. Because I haven't taught advanced short story in a long time, but right when I really sat down to, you know, in, you know, 2014 and went to my parents' lake house and, you know, rewrote the collection to connect it, I think that was right after I had just taught an advanced short story collection where I decided that as part of the class, You weren't just going to write short stories and critique them. We were going to read or read portions of short story collections. And everybody had to do a presentation on what made your favorite collection work as a collection and how does that influence the collection that you're putting together. Because as short story writers, you need to know what your thematic is. You need to know what your story is. And that was one of those aha moments when I finished teaching that class and several months later, That's what I'm not doing. You know, working on this collection made me realize I am actually a writer. You know, I'm I'm not just pretending. 
and that I just have to accept my process. I think I spend a lot of time, especially watching, you know, my my, uh, you know, my colleagues, my you know, friends from graduate school, working very a lot of them, you know, write quickly and and get books out there, and and my process isn't that, and I'm not even, I can't even say I'm slow and steady. I write in fits and spurts. I have crises of confidence, and that is my process. It is all part of it. It's what suddenly brings me to say, oh, wait, that's the one I need to, to write because I <laughs> desperation is part of my process. And basically, I guess the only advice I can give is accept your process as yours and embrace it and learn the tricks you need to learn to work around it. And now, Colette Sartor reads from Once Removed and Other Stories. Malocchio, which means evil eye. The morning I started kindergarten, my grandmother was the only person I wanted to see. This was way back in 1948. I woke up early to a dark sky, my stomach jittery at the thought of walking with the neighborhood kids to the elementary school a few blocks away. The apartment was quiet as usual. My father died in an accident during basic training for World War II when Mama was pregnant with me. So it was just her and me in the middle apartment of my grandmother's triple-decker row house, with my grandmother's apartment below us and my Uncle Louis above. Mama was already downstairs in Nona's kitchen, cooking breakfast before she left for work. Nona was in the barn milking the cows while Uncle Louis filled bottles with milk and loaded them into Nona's cart. She'd be leaving for her delivery soon. She might already be gone. I hurried to my bedroom window and strained to see across the large, dusky yard. The milk cart tilted, horseless, in the front of the barn. Nona was still milking. I could catch her and get her opinion about how to make friends at school. I hadn't had much success in our neighborhood, even though it swarmed with a ragtag bunch of Irish and Italian kids, who spent hours jumping rope and kipping cans and filling the air with shouts and laughter. I hardly ever ventured beyond the cinder block wall surrounding our property, a deep corner lot that spanned half a city block in Fairview, New Jersey. The few times I worked up the nerve to join the other kids, they ignored me, even when I asked to play the way I practiced with Nona. Although practicing with her wasn't my best idea. She didn't much like children except for me, her only grandchild, her cuchola mia, her little puppy. Whenever kids played handball against our wall, she pretended to throw the evil eye at them. You scare my cows and make sour the milk, she would yell as they ran away shrieking. Mama told me not to bother with them when I came home crying one day. They were low-class little grunts, not our kind of people. Nona overheard and said, I know Contessa no more, Carmela. We know better than nobody. But she didn't encourage me to leave the yard either. She and Mama both felt safer with me at home. They viewed the world with suspicion ever since a flu pandemic took seven of Nona's children, Mama, the middle, and Louie, the youngest, were the only ones who survived. Standing by my window, I saw my uncle outside, leading the horse out of the barn. Quickly, I pulled on the lace-collared blouse and yellow pinafore my mother made for my first day. The starched outfit itched all over, but if I changed into my regular cotton shirt and dungarees, Mama would yell and I'd never catch Nona. I buckled my dress shoes and raced downstairs to Nona's walkout basement apartment where we ate all our meals. At the kitchen stove, Mama dropped batter-coated apple slices into a sizzling pan. Polenta bubbled in a pot on another burner. An apron protected her tailored shirt dress from splatter. She glanced at me. That pinafore fits nice. 
It's itchy, I said. I want my dungarees. Girls don't wear slacks to school, she pointed at her high heels. I stand in these all day, even though they make my feet ache. You know why? Because to move up in management, you need to dress like management. I scuffed my shoes against each other. I didn't understand who management was or how dressing like one would help me, though I knew my mother worked in a factory down the hill where she bossed around 40 women sewing children's snowsuit pieces. She reminded me often about how she'd worked there since she was 13, when Nona decided they needed extra money more than my mother needed to learn geometry or the history of the Roman Empire. School's not a factory, I said. Mama stirred the polenta. Same rules. You want respect? You have to act like you deserve it. But I wanted to be liked, not respected. I wanted to make friends, something I couldn't figure out how to do, even on my own block. Nona would understand, or at least listen. The refrigerator door squeaked as I opened it to grab a carrot from my favorite cow, small brown-spotted Sophia, who lowed whenever she saw me. Mama stopped stirring and pointed her spoon at me. No barn this morning, she said. I planted my fist on my hip, the carrot poking me in the waist. Nona's there. Uncle Louie, too. I'm allowed. That was the rule. I could only go to the barn with an adult. Mama said the barn was an accident waiting to happen. Too many sharp tools waiting to gash me. Too many animals waiting to bite me. Though Nona taught me, if I treated the animals right, they would treat me right, too. I need to talk to Nona, Mama frowned. You can talk to me, Rosie. I looked at the carrot, the linoleum, anywhere but at my mother. Navigating between her and my grandmother was tricky, but this morning was important. My grandmother loved me best. She knew me best. Finally, I looked at my mother. I need Nona, I said. Mama shook her spoon at me. Drops of polenta sprayed across the linoleum. You're wearing school clothes? The barn's filthy. I'll stay clean, I said, and raced out of the kitchen through Nona's tiny bedroom to the back door. Rose Conchetta Maroney, get back here, my mother yelled. But I ran out into the dusky morning anyway, intent on seeing my grandmother. The Right Process is hosted and curated by me, Charlie Jensen, and recorded at the UCLA Extension Studios. This season was produced by Jamie Moss. Audio support was provided by Andre Nikolaev. The Writers Program offers courses, certificates, and services that help writers achieve their writing goals one page at a time. For more information, visit writers.uclaextension.edu.